John chapter 1, our text is verses 29 through 34, and this is the word of God. It says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Will you pray with me? Father, as we move to the time of opening your word, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, will teach us, convict us, and grow us. I pray if anyone hears this message who is not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus, who is not under your grace, that they will be saved. I pray for those who hear this message who know you, that this will convict us and call us to obedience, that it will encourage us and grow us. Father, you know that I lack the ability on my own to bring anything to the table but sin. I pray that you will, by your spirit, make your word ring gloriously. Father, forgive us, grow us, be glorified in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated, finally. I think you're fine. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Those words out of the mouth of John the Baptist wonderfully summarize for you and for me what John came here to do. John bore witness to Jesus. John pointed people to Jesus. And as we said last week, as a Christian, it is your job to point people to Jesus too. Now, when we point people to Jesus, when we share the good news of salvation in Jesus, what do we call that? You guys give me a word. What do we call it when we point people to Jesus and share the news of salvation in Jesus? Gospel? Witnessing? Good. Evangelism? You guys know that word, right? What is evangelism? I would say to you that evangelism is you telling people the good news of how they can be saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, calling them to repent and believe, and leaving the results to God. Evangelism does not mean that you persuade a person. It doesn't mean that you convince a person. Evangelism means that you communicate the truth and you let God take it from there. Well, this morning, we pick up our place in the gospel according to John, watching as John the Baptist points people to Jesus. And as we watch what John says here, we'll see a few things that we want to be sure that we communicate about Jesus as well. So, if you are one who takes notes... Will you make room in your note-taking to learn five things we want to tell the world 
as we point them to Jesus. Five things we want to tell the world as we point people to Jesus. And our first point this morning is tell people Jesus is their only hope for forgiveness. Tell people that Jesus is their only hope for forgiveness. Look at verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in our story's timeline, if the prologue of John's gospel is sort of the credits to open the show, we are only on the second actual day of John's gospel. See, yesterday... We studied it last week, but yesterday, John the Baptist had a conversation with a delegation of people from Jerusalem, a collection of religious leaders who wanted to know just who John thought he was. And the Baptist pointed away from himself, and he told the group, guys, somebody special is on his way. Well, today, as the scene opens on day two of John's gospel, the special person is drawing nearer. John the Baptist looks up and he sees Jesus in the distance walking toward him. Just yesterday, John told the religious leaders, the Savior's on his way. Now John has the chance to point him out to the people who were standing nearby. And when John sees Jesus walking his direction, he speaks up and he points out to his disciples. He points Jesus out to his disciples by saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that right there, if you hear it, will help you know something you want to be sure you tell people when you talk about Jesus. Real quick, the word behold. What does the word behold mean? In, in, in Sunday school, I told you about my, my Old Testament professor was a man named Daniel Block. Uh, and he gave us that definition of worship we used to use, right? We used in Sunday school. You remember that? Well, the other thing that he told us in class, and this is true, Dr. Block used to say this all the time, is when you see the word behold, that's like an Old Testament way of saying, looky. And that's really what John the Baptist said here. Look at that. Take a look. This is amazing. John says, I got something really important you need to hear, and you'll hear it with the word behold. Get, pay attention to me. So you need to know this. Telling people about Jesus, friends, is an important thing. You want people to hear you because you have life-changing news to offer them. And John calls Jesus, look at these words here, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in our culture, if you called somebody a little lamb, you might be referencing that they are sweet. You might be thinking they are gentle and sweet and innocent, adorable. And maybe, maybe those words were apl applicable in the first century. But can I tell you that that was not the first thing people thought of when they thought of lambs? Lambs, lambs were offerings. Lambs were animals that were slaughtered in sacrifice. Sometimes the lamb would be offered just as a burnt offering. It would be symbolically offering food and fellowship as a gift to God. The burnt offering, 
the day-to-day morning and evening offerings, they were kind of like saying, God, here's some food that we can share in together. We're having fellowship. We are united. We are friends. But lambs were also offered up as ransoming or redeeming substitutes. There were times in the Bible that a life was owed to God. And God, out of kindness, would accept the life of a lamb and allow the person to live. Can you think of some times? Think of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah in Genesis chapter 22, right? Isaac was supposed to be the sacrifice. God let an animal die in his place. Or think about the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12. Right? That Passover lamb died so the firstborn of the house could live. That wasn't a sin offering. It was just a substitute. And sometimes lambs were sin offerings. They, they took the substitute idea and they tied the substitute idea not just that I will die in your place but I will with my blood cover your sin. And if you want to understand what John the Baptist meant when he pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, you have to include the substitute idea and the sin offering idea, and it has to go further. Jesus is like the Passover lamb. But the concept of suffering to take away the sins of the world is also in view, and that was not what a Passover did. So, When you hear John say about Jesus that he is the Lamb of God, think, yes, that lambs were sometimes sacrificed to indicate fellowship between God and his people, relationship between God and his people. Lambs meant that. Think of the lamb that Abraham said to Isaac, God will provide for himself a lamb. Boy, God really did, didn't he? Think of the Passover lamb that died as a substitute so the children of Israel could live. Think of the sin offerings that you read about in the book of Leviticus. And then tie all of those together with the fact that John was saying this while Jesus was walking toward John the Baptist as a man, God in the flesh. And do you know what biblical picture you'll come to? You will come to the picture of the suffering servant that Isaiah promised. Listen to the words of Isaiah 53, 4 and following. Just listen and think about John calling Jesus a lamb. Surely, verse 4 says, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Listen. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter 
And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquity. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered, numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This, this is beautiful, don't you think? This is the love of God. You and I are sinners who must have forgiveness or we give up our lives for eternity. God sent his son to die like a sacrificial lamb so that he might save our very souls. And only Jesus, only God the son has what it takes to be the infinitely worthy Lamb of God who can cover the sins of all God will ever forgive. When the Baptist says this, when he says he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John is saying that the death of Jesus is going to be for all people groups. Jesus did not come merely to take away the sins of national Israel. Jesus makes no distinction about whom he will forgive. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of Jews and Gentiles, of men and women, of young and old, of rich and poor, of healthy and sick. John's not teaching universalism when he says he takes away the sins of the world. He's not saying that everybody is going to automatically be forgiven. Neither is John even giving us the doctrine of a universal atonement here. He's not suggesting that Jesus would be punished by God in exactly the same way for every individual person's sin. As I heard said recently, Jesus died without distinction, but he did not. He, just, he died for all people without distinction, but not for all people without exception. What does that mean? You will never be excluded from, from the grace of God because of your ethnicity. You will never be outside of the grace of God because of social factors. You will never be outside of the grace of God because of where you're from or what you do for a living. But there are many people who will refuse to acknowledge Jesus and they will find that the sacrifice of the Lamb of God does not cover their sin. Instead, those who refuse Jesus face the judgment of God alone. And they will not survive. If you want to point people to Jesus, like John the Baptist did, you got to tell people Jesus is the only hope that they have for forgiveness. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the 
Lamb of God. Not one lamb among many. He is the Lamb of God. We need a lamb to cover our sin, to die in our place, to bring us into fellowship with God. And if you have Jesus, you have it because you have the forgiveness of God. But there is no forgiveness from God apart from the person and work of Jesus. Tell folks that and you're pointing people to Jesus. You with me? Point number two. Point number two. Tell people Jesus is supreme. Tell people Jesus is supreme. Verse 30 says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Here, once again, we continue in the passage and we have words from John the Baptist about how Jesus outranks him. Do notice, at this point, we're 30 verses into the text, and the gospel writer has pointed out that Jesus is superior to John the Baptist four times. Verse 8, verse 15, verses 26 and 27, here in verse 30. I said this to you a couple weeks ago, though John was born before Jesus was born, John knows Jesus is completely superior to him. John acknowledges Jesus existed forever before he did. You see, the Bible tells us, if you look at John 1, that Jesus has always been. Verses 1 and 2, we saw that Jesus is the word who was in the beginning with God and who is God. Jesus is superior, infinitely superior to any man Any religious leader, any prophet, any king, any spiritual advisor, any angel, anything that has ever been created, Jesus is infinitely greater than the angels and the demons and the people all put together. Jesus is superior to all creation. Why? Because Jesus was not himself created. Jesus is supreme because Jesus is God. And John the Baptist knew this. He pointed away from himself and he pointed to the superiority of Jesus. John showed people that Jesus is supreme. And if you want to tell people rightly about Jesus, don't leave this out. Don't let them think you're trying to get them to follow one ordinary man among a group of ordinary men. Don't try to make them think they're following one good man above average men. Let them know that if they wish to follow Jesus, if they follow Jesus, they follow God. But let them know that to reject Jesus is to, to reject Jesus is to reject God and to invite for yourself the wrath of God. Tell people of the superiority of Jesus, and you are faithfully pointing others to Jesus. Third point. Tell people how you came to know Jesus. Tell people how you came to know Jesus. I'm going to read the rest of the passage for us here. John says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. 
There's a lesson here for us to learn before we actually dig in a little tighter and find the last couple of big truths in these verses. Because what happens right here is John tells his own story to his disciples. John gives a personal testimony as a means of pointing people to Jesus. What's John's testimony? John basically tells his followers right here, look, I didn't know who the chosen one was, but I knew he was coming. And God sent me out here in the wilderness to baptize people. And God told me that I would know who the Messiah was by something I would see. God told me I was going to baptize one man and I'd see God's Holy Spirit descend upon him and remain on him. And that one, that man would be the one to follow. And it happened just as God told me it would. I saw God's Spirit come down and remain upon Jesus. I have seen. I testify. Jesus is the Son of God. Isn't that great? That's John's story. Now, it's a little bit dramatic. But it's pretty simple, isn't it? That is a simple, personal testimony that John gives. And here's my question for you. What is yours? What is your simple story? If somebody asked you, how did you become a Christian? If somebody asked you, why are you a Christian? What would you tell them? Would the story, would the story come out of your mouth easily? Could you, could you tell somebody how you realized that God's perfect and you're not? When did it happen? What did it sound like? What were you feeling like? Could you tell somebody how it was that you finally understood Jesus was your only hope and how you cried out to Jesus pleading for forgiveness? Could you put into words the joyful confidence of knowing that you have trusted in Christ and because of that, you've received God's promise of life forever. If you cannot easily tell your own story, I would like to suggest to you that you work on it. Can I give us a challenge here this morning? Here's your challenge. Homework. Homework, okay? By the end of this week, would you make sure you can give your Christian testimony in three minutes or less. Did you hear me? Would you make sure that by the end of this week, you can give your Christian testimony in three minutes or less? Now, if I'm talking to you about what should you put in your testimony, I usually will tell people four things to be sure that you include. Tell people who you were before you were saved, but don't dwell on it forever. Some people really roll around in that a little bit too long. Tell people exactly what did Jesus do to save you. Get the cross in there. Tell people how you received the gift. There's your conversion. And tell people how have things changed in your life now that you have Jesus. By the way, if you want to find a pattern for that, read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and you'll see it who you were, what Jesus did, how you received it, how have you changed. It's right there in Scripture. Let me give you an example. 
I grew up in a home where the things of God were respected in a way, for sure, but they weren't central to who we were as a family. But as I got older, I began to understand that I wasn't that good. And no matter how good I wanted to be, I would never be good enough to be perfect. I knew I was guilty of sin. Sometimes I was guilty on accident, and sometimes I was guilty on purpose. You guys know what that feels like? And I learned from people who told me about God's word, I needed to be forgiven by God. I remember standing in, in church and holding on to the pews and listening to a pastor tell me I needed God's forgiveness. I needed to be saved. And many of the people who loved me the most in life also told me about Jesus. And I learned that Jesus, the son of God, died to pay the price for my sins and then he rose from the grave. And I learned that Jesus invites all people to come to him and find forgiveness. I knew this. I knew I could never be good enough to be perfect in front of God. I could never be comfortable in that, never be confident in that. All I could do was admit my sin, believe in Jesus, and ask Jesus, oh Jesus, please save me. And thankfully, by the grace of God, I did believe. I trusted Jesus as my only hope for salvation. I admitted I was a sinner. I asked him to forgive me my sin and to help me follow him. And Jesus did. And now I live with hope before God because Jesus has done what I could never do. How's that? Does that work? That's, that's it. Why do I challenge you to learn to tell your basic story to other people? Simple reason is because almost anybody will listen to you if you offer to tell them your story. They may not be ready to let you preach a sermon at them. They may not be willing to come to church with you. But almost everybody you know would let you tell them about, how, about your personal experience with Jesus Christ. So be, no, be sure that you can, right? Be ready. Know that you can. Make sure that you can give your testimony at a moment's notice. And make sure you've got a short version because you never know how long that moment lasts. And I'm telling you, prepare it. Think it through. Write it down. Homeschool parents, wouldn't this be a great homeschool project? 300 words. Tell me who you were, what Jesus did to save our souls, how you, became to believe, how you believed in it, and how it changed you. That's not a bad assignment. Make sure that the testimony you would give is right biblically. Make sure that it tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Practice with a Christian friend. And then if you get a chance, go tell your story to somebody. That is a great way to point people to Jesus. Still with me? Okay, fourth point then. Fourth point. Tell people only Jesus prepares them to meet God. Tell people only Jesus prepares them to meet God. Look at verse 33. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Last week we talked a little bit about John's baptism. John was out in the desert and he was calling people to repent. He was telling people to get ready because God's king was coming. He was baptizing them to get them ready, to, to get them cleaned up to meet God. 
And like we said last week, that has nothing to do with baptism today. Christian baptism is an act that tells the world that you have already met God through the Savior Jesus Christ. But John here tells his disciples Jesus was going to baptize in a different way. John baptized with water. He symbolically helps you clean up. He, he gets you wet. He, he symbolically prepares you to meet the God who's coming. But Jesus is going to do something different. Jesus is going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to get you ready to meet God by cleaning you up with the Spirit of God. And I wonder, maybe it was John thinking here about the new covenant language in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, 25 to 28, the word of God says, listen to this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. That text in Ezekiel is God's promise that one day God's going to send somebody who would do something amazing. God was going to make his people truly clean. Now I think you know, if you're honest, you're not naturally clean, right? Not one of us has ever been perfect. Heck, not one of us is even good if you compare your goodness to the perfection of God. And that is true whether you've been a Christian for 80 years or you're the most lost person who ever hears my voice. If you look at your life next to the perfection of God, you know you're not clean like that. Psalm 24 verses 3 through 5 asks a big question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? That's a good question, right? Who can go to God? Who can go to heaven? Who's going to be okay with God? The answer is he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. But listen, it says he will receive, be given as a gift, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Did you hear that? He will receive blessing. And what was the other word? Righteousness. Don't lose that. This is important. See, the problem is you and I need to be clean in order to live eternally in the presence of God. Some people foolishly think they can just clean themselves up, straighten up, fly right, be good, be a little bit religious, and you're going to make your way to heaven. But that is a deeply mistaken belief. We are way too messed up, way too corrupt, way too sinful to just waltz into the presence of God. We need more than just payment to be made for our sins. We need more than our debt to be paid before God. If we want to live in heaven in the presence of God forever, we must be cleaned up from the inside out. We need to be cleaned up so much that we can survive in the presence of a holy God. And Psalm 24 says this, we need to receive righteousness as a gift from God because ain't none of us can drum it up on our own. So with that in mind, think about the fact that Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus doesn't wash you off with water and leave you rotten on the inside. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit of God to live within every believer. Romans 8 verse 9 says, You, however, are, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. And what does the Holy Spirit do in you? He does the work of sanctification. That word sanctification, it's a big theology word, but what it means is that he cleans you up. He takes you out of your life of sin and he works in you to make you more and more like Jesus. I would pray, Christians, that you are at least a step or two more like Jesus today than you were when you first got saved. That's sanctification. The Holy Spirit moves into the heart of every Christian at the moment we're saved. He baptizes us, so to speak, at the moment we receive Jesus. And the Holy Spirit then remains in us and works with us to make us more and more like Jesus until the day we stand before God. Now, the Spirit of God will not perfect you completely while you're on this earth in this body. But he will make you progressively different and hopefully better and a little bit better and a little bit better until the day you die where Jesus returns. And on that day, the Spirit of God will finish his work and he will make you perfect enough to live in the presence of God forever. That's good. But let's remember... Not one of us can perfect ourselves. It must be a joint work between God's willing, yes, our willing, and the Spirit's empowering. Without the Spirit of God, you lack the ability to be ready to meet God. And you cannot have the Spirit, you cannot be baptized in the Spirit unless you come to Jesus. John's baptism was supposed to get people ready to meet God, but it only did so in a figurative way. Jesus' baptism, which he gives to us the moment we receive his grace, that is what gets you ready to meet God. So point people to Jesus as the only way they'll ever be ready to meet God. And our last point, fifth point, tell people Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 34, John says, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So finally, John the Baptist testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. And it's like the title Lamb of God from earlier. There's a lot of meaning, a lot of meaning in the phrase Son of God. Um, when you think about Jesus as Son of God, there are two things, two things I would like you to have come to mind. One of them is more obvious than the other one, by the way. Part of what's contained in Son of God language is king language. And that's what I would say is less obvious. And to understand it, you've got to think about the story of God's promises. When God created humanity, he created mankind in his image. The human race was intended to be children of God, sons and daughters of the Lord. And honestly, they were intended to rule like a royal people. Adam, the first created human, could in fact be called son of God in a sense, couldn't he? 
But Adam rebelled against God. He did not fulfill his responsibility as the first man. Later, God called on Abraham to father a nation, which was called Israel. And God said the nation of Israel was a son to him. Exodus 4.22, Hosea 11.1, good examples. Further on in the timeline of the Old Testament, once Israel rejected the leadership of God, the Lord began to speak of the king of Israel as a son to God. Listen to this. 2 Samuel 7.11 and following. That's the Davidic covenant passage. Verse 11 says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Listen to this. God speaking to David about his son says, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. But now we know we're talking about Solomon because it says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Or Psalm 2, verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So God called David and Solomon and the other chosen kings of Israel, he called them sons, sons of God. And that reference points not simply to the king who was on the throne of Israel at that time, but it also pointed to the promised king who would come. So when John the Baptist says that Jesus is the Son of God, part of what he means is that Jesus is the promised King, the promised Son of David, the Messiah, the King who will rule forever over the world. But there's one more concept, and it's a little bit more familiar. It's the fact that Jesus as the Son of God is truly divine, truly God in flesh. That's what we addressed most clearly in our study of the prologue back in the Christmas season, right? What does it mean that Jesus is Son of God? It does not mean that Jesus is lower than God or that he was created by God. Instead, the idea, the biblical idea, is that Jesus is of the same substance as the Father and the Holy Spirit. To call Jesus Son of God is to call Jesus truly God, genuinely God, even though Jesus has taken upon himself true humanity. And both of those Son of God pictures are key themes in the Gospel according to John. Jesus is genuinely the King God has promised will come into the world and rule. And Jesus is genuinely God in the flesh, God with us, God the Son. So if you want to point people to Jesus, you got to tell them Jesus is Son of God. He is the King whose loving authority that we must submit to. And Jesus is God, the God we worship, the God whose forgiveness we need. The only right response to Jesus as the Son of God is to believe in him, to surrender to him as Lord, and to bow our lives before him in worship. Tell people Jesus 
is the Son of God. Christians, we want to point people to Jesus. John the Baptist gives us some great examples of how to do it. Tell people Jesus is their only hope for forgiveness. Tell people Jesus is supreme. Tell people how you came to know Jesus. Tell people that only Jesus prepares them to meet God. And tell people Jesus is the Son of God, emphasizing his authority and his deity. And if somehow, if somehow you're hearing my voice and you've never run to Jesus to find forgiveness, would you let me point you to Jesus? You need his grace. Jesus will forgive and will receive anyone who comes to him in true faith and repentance. So I urge you, turn from your sin, believe in Jesus, and be saved today. Let's bow together and pray, friends. Lord God, thank you for a picture of John pointing to Jesus. Thank you even more for Jesus. Help us first be people who trust Jesus. Next, help us be people who point others to Jesus. Lord, I pray that you will give us all opportunity, even this week, give us opportunity to point people to Jesus. Lord, I pray you forgive us and strengthen us and grow us. I pray you take your word and plant it deep in us. And I pray that we will magnify you. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.